0: Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, a CIO's view of new cyber legislation.
1: They could reorient the bill a bit, not take any of this out, but really refocus on the fact that, hey, agencies are in different places. They need to do good cybersecurity and IT modernization planning that really does focus on their high-value assets. A mess
0: for contractors to meet the vaccine mandate.
1: So it's a mess in three ways, I think,
2: Francis. Number one is the requirements and the guidance start at the top, but as all things contract occur, the implementation is at the contract level.
0: And just how bad is the Navy's technical debt problem?
3: We've also accrued a lot of technical debt, which we believe puts us 15 to 20 years behind our industry technical uh, technology equivalents.
0: It's Thursday, October 21st, 2021, day four of Cyber Week. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. December 21st is delivery day for the General Services Administration's new Polaris contract. Senior GSA contracting officer James Mitchell says proposals will be due 40 to 60 days after the release of the solicitation. GSA says Polaris will be a five-year contract with no ceiling. The Army will cut six of its 12 data centers by 2028, according to its chief information officer. Raj Iyer says three of the service's four most complicated ERP systems have already moved to the cloud. Ayers' announcement comes after the service released its new digital transformation strategy. The Department of Homeland Security has new power to hire and pay cyber talent. Tim Starks is writing about it on CyberScoop. Tim, welcome and happy Cyber Week to you. What is the significance of what DHS can do now that it couldn't do before? Welcome.
4: Hey, thanks for having me again. Uh, it, this is, um, I, I use the word dramatic in, in terms of how what kind of remake this is. Um, as someone who is pretty familiar with how federal government employment works le- like you are, um, you know, that the general schedule is kind of the, 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 the way in which almost everything happens in terms of pay. Um, this just says goodbye, throws that out the window for, for anybody who gets into this exempted, ser- sorry, I thought it was just called the Cybersecurity Service. Um, starting on November 15th, they will be able to be paid essentially what DHS wants to pay them. And that's just the start. Of what is uh, a a remake of the entire way this happens at DHS it's a it's a very dramatic top to bottom this looks like very little else out there in the government right now
0: the money is fascinating to me you lead this story off by writing soon a cyber professional DHS could make as much money as the vice president two hundred fifty five thousand eight hundred bucks or more up to three hundred thirty two thousand hundred dollars if they're in a geographic market where that salary makes the offer competitive you're exactly correct it blows the general schedule out of the water at least in this area and it strikes me this will be a model as DOD's model potentially could be and you mentioned that in this story too on cyberscoop.com for other agencies it doesn't strike me that agencies will wait very long before saying hey we want to be able to do this too have you seen any traction with that yet as you've been following this story
4: in fact, just the other day, Angela Bailey had said, she's the the chief human capital officer at DHS, had just said that um, they have been approached by other agencies asking, basically, can we borrow all the lessons learned from you doing this? The one thing that is important, though, is that they would have to get congressional approval for this. Another thing that makes this story really interesting to write is that Congress gave DHS the power to do this in 2014. Yeah. It's taken seven years to do it, and and the reason they say is because it's such a, a, a radical overhaul. Uh, other agencies would have to get that same kind of authority. DHS has it, DoD DoD has it, and right now that's about it. And, and, and of course, you know the DoD system is pretty similar, but there are some other things about the DHS system that are a little different. There's an, there's a kind of inventorying process of this. That people are excited about because they're going to be looking at taking all these factors about how much people are paid in the private sector and looking at analyses of of these kinds of other workforce things and being able to continually adjust and estimate what kind of people they need and for what kinds of jobs. And that is something that uh, that makes this system stand out a little differently from the DHS system.
0: There's a lot more in your story on cyberscoop.com, Tim. I commend it to people who would like to learn everything that's going on with this. Thanks very much for coming on to talk about it.
4: Yeah, happy to do it.
0: You can read more about all of these stories and many others at fedscoop.com and cyberscoop.com. Leading government cyber experts, like the chair of the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, Senator Gary Peters, will join me at Palo Alto's Public Sector Ignite virtual conference. It's happening Thursday, November 18th. I hope you'll join me, too. You'll learn about key cybersecurity issues impacting agencies, including zero trust, endpoint detection and response, and secure remote access. You can sign up now at ignite.paloaltonetworks.com federal information security modernization act is in line for another update the leaders of the senate homeland security and governmental affairs committee have introduced a bill that includes some major changes for agencies richard spires is principal at richard a spires consulting he's author of success in the technology field a guide for advancing your career and he's former chief information officer at the departments of homeland security and the internal revenue service richard welcome it's good to see you what do you see in this legislation that senator peters and Senator Portman are advancing that makes a big difference in the way that agencies do business. Welcome, Richard. I'm glad you had me,
1: Francis. Yeah, regarding the the bill, I mean, first I should say that, you know, FISMA does need to be modernized again. I mean, it was originally passed in 2002. It was then updated in 2014. You know, it's time. I mean, eight years is a long time, and we we do need to, to look at it again. Uh, there are aspects of this bill that I think are very, very positive. I mean, I, I, I view it as kind of a best practices um, uh, amalgamation of best practices for cybersecurity, obviously focused on, on federal government agencies. Um, you know, for example, it's requiring agencies to do things like penetration testing. It's uh, really upping the game for, uh, for CISA, which is part of DHS in their role and oversight of agencies and what they're doing in cybersecurity. Um, So there's some very, very positive things about this bill that I think would help agencies. And I particularly would highlight small agencies that that are struggling mightily with cybersecurity. There's even a provision in this bill for CISA to stand up um, and pilot a a security operations center, service offering. So a SOC service offering, which I think is a really good idea because many small agencies just do not have the wherewithal to do this well. So why don't you outsource it to an organization that focuses on it?
0: I I note though, I've known you long enough to read between the lines, Richard. You said there are aspects of this bill that are very positive. There are some things in this legislation that you really like are there things in this legislation that you don't care for speaking as somebody who used to be a cio subject to what this bill would have you do
1: well you know i'm a practitioner <laughs> and i and i like things that actually work and and here's my concern there's so much in this bill I mean, it's 132 pages long that you Agencies just get overwhelmed. I mean, they're overwhelmed already with what they're trying to do from a cybersecurity perspective. If you look at the executive order and everything that they have to do, I think it's 23 mandates they're working against right now. So here's my fundamental problem I have with much of this kind of legislation or even executive orders for that matter, it's not just legislation, is that cybersecurity is really about doing risk-based analysis and focusing on the most important things. And just as we saw with the original FISMA, it really became kind of a compliance ordeal for for agencies with the auditors, you know, looking over their shoulder and making sure they're checking all these boxes. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're very secure. And my concern is there's so much in this bill and so many things that agencies are now going to have to do in addition, that I think we 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 could fall back into that same problem of it turning into more of a compliance exercise than an actual help in agencies being more secure. So my advice to uh, the Senate HISCAC, and and Congress in general would be: make sure that it starts with risk analysis in mind. Okay, you know they they talk about high value assets, um, and and that's a very good thing to discuss. But you know focus first on protecting those high value assets, those systems, that data, that, that are most important to your agency, um, and, and then work out from there. I mean, I think so much of this is we're, we're gonna boil the ocean for the enterprise here, and we're gonna do all these things that are gonna help. And I, and I actually feel like that's just overwhelming agencies. When I, and I'm not gonna name any agencies, but when I talk to practitioners that are in government working these issues, There's an awful lot on their plate, and I I think they're struggling to handle what they already have to do, let alone new legislation that would add more requirements.
0: You said something there a moment ago that I I don't even know if it was intended to pique my interest, but it did. There's a huge difference in the way this legislation will affect agencies that didn't even apply in 2014, the last update. You talked about protecting data as well as protecting systems. Nobody mm-hmm. really cared about protecting data the last time FISMA was updated. Do you see anything here that specifically addresses that, or is it just the idea of protecting uh, agencies in general? And data is such an important part of what agency ha- agencies have to offer now. What What's the implication for this? I think this a only?
1: recognition. You know, it, I mean, obviously protecting systems is very important as well, but. You know, so many of these breaches, and particularly those that that have uh, PII, personally identifiable information, uh, that has been breached, you know, go to the heart of of us needing to protect data. I mean, the OPM data breach is probably the one that everybody remembers as, as being the most uh, substantial. But you know, it's interesting. This bill uh, now goes beyond that and and recognizes that. And it actually uh, has OMB needing to define what a major incident is, although the bill actually lays out a lot of what a major incident should be. For instance, an incident uh, the head of the agency determines is likely to have an impact on national security, or homeland security, or economic security. And and why was that added? Well, if you look at the Solar Winds data breach, or you look at some of these latest ransomware attacks. It wasn't about PII, okay, that was exfiltrated, okay? It was, it was really about other types of data. And and so the idea is we need to focus on all types of data that's relevant or important to an agency and protecting that. And I think the bill does a good job, okay, of, of, of reorienting us uh, to focus not just on the systems but but also on the data. Um,
0: uh, so, again, you say something that, that- – jumpstarts my brain is there enough flexibility in this bill to help agencies to give agencies resources and latitude for example with something like ransomware again a year ago 18 months ago it wasn't on anybody's radar screen now everybody's thinking about it and i wonder if there are uh, if there's resilience in the bill we're talking about cyber resilience is there resilience in this legislation? to give agencies the latitude they need to, for this to really be constructive to help them deal with these things?
1: Well, again, I go back to my the, – the, the short answer is yes, but the caveat is I, I keep going back to that point that there's so much in this bill that uh, requires agencies, and you know how auditors are going to be. Um, they're going to immediately focus on the things that, oh, this agency didn't do this part of it well rather than focus on, you know, here are the, you know, the risk-based assessment. Now they talk about risk in the bill. That's still supposed to be the center of it. But we, as we have seen time and time again, you know, when it comes right down to it, there's a, there's a laundry list of things you're supposed to be doing. And the question is, are you doing them all well? And most agencies are not going to be able to stand up to that level of scrutiny and, and look good in this. So I keep coming back to if they could reorient the bill a bit, not take any of this out, but really focus on the fact that, hey, agencies are in different places. They need to do good cybersecurity and IT modernization planning that really does focus on their high value assets and, and, and protecting those as part of their IT modernization strategy. If they can focus on that and really make advances there, I think we as a government or we as, as a society uh, are, are in much better shape.
0: Always great ideas I get from you real quick. Uh, success in the technology field, a guide for advancing your career. I'm seeing tons of positive feedback for your book on uh, especially on LinkedIn on social media. So congratulations on that, Richard. Well, well, thank you so much, Francis. You can read more about the ideas around reforming FISMA in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Zoom for Government sponsors the Daily Scoop podcast today, designed with relevant certifications and ATOs for the federal hybrid workforce. Zoom for Government offers rich and high reliability audio and video to work through complex issues and build rapport across government with mission partners and engaging the public. Learn more at kerosoft.com zoom. The deadline's approaching for contractors who work with federal agencies to get their people vaccinated. Logistical complications are popping up though for companies and for agencies. David Berteau is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. He's former assistant secretary of defense for logistics and material readiness. Dave, welcome. It's great to talk to you. Before we turn the recorder on, you said this is turning into a real mess. What do you mean by that and where are you seeing the mess? Welcome.
2: So it's a mess in three ways, I think, Francis, and thanks for having me on here. Number one is the requirements and the guidance start at the top. But as all things contract occur, the implementation is at the contract level. And so you always have that potential for a disconnect between centralized guidance and 50,000 separate procuring contracting officers with their own warrants and their own programs that are operating. The second way it's in a mess is because of the very tight timetables necessary to get this done. Uh, With a December 8th deadline for full vaccination and the definition of full vaccination being two weeks after the last dose of whatever vaccine you occur, there's not a lot of time. And the third way it's a mess is because of questions about to whom does it apply? where are the boundaries of exemptions and exceptions, what are the processes for dealing with those. So there's just so many layers of complexity that are still being nailed down, and I'll be glad to go into some of those in more detail.
0: Yeah, I want to talk about each of those in turn, Dave, but I want to make something very clear uh, at the start. One of your colleagues sent us some Points ahead of this discussion, and the first one I think is important to point out. PSC supports any effort to curtail the spread of COVID-19, including vaccine testing, social distancing, etc. So this is not an objection on the part of you or your companies to having employees vaccinated broadly. It's in the execution, if I'm reading that right. Is that fair?
2: That's fair, and in fact, among our member companies, and as you know, Francis, we have large, medium, and small, and we cover the entire federal government and all types of companies. You know. A number of our member companies have said this mandate is actually in line with what we need to do anyway. And it helps us because once the government puts a mandate on, then it reinforces the need. So for a lot of our members, this has been a plus and it has helped them get a fully vaccinated workforce. The challenge comes where the workers are not interested in being part of that process. And so I think we, we span really the full spectrum of responses and capabilities that result from those responses
0: all right let's take uh, an approach to solutions here you know I've been doing this long enough that you know I'm interested in how do we fix a mess when we find it the first one that you talked about requirements at the top but the guidance is by contract how do we fix that either on the contractor side or what would you like to see the government or individual agencies do to solve that one Dave
2: that's a really important question because you don't want to do anything to undermine the warrant that the contracting officer has. That's the fundamental premise of the federal acquisition process and its integrity and ethics along the way. At the same time, we've and we've seen this work in some cases, it is both plausible and necessary for guidance to say, as you execute your warrant, here are the things you need to be keeping in consideration. It's more than just performance on the specific contract. It's the overall impact on the capability of industry to support the government. And I think if you have guidance that takes that into account, then you can then you can map from that top and bottom and come out with something productive. We saw it, by the way, back in March of 2020 with the rapid transition to the authority to telework. Contracts didn't have, didn't specifically authorize teleworking. And so you had contracting officers saying, I'm sorry, teleworking is not authorized under your contract. We got a guidance out of the Office of Management Budget says, maximize teleworking as part of your implementation. That did the trick. That kind of general guidance comes into play. In the end, you want a solution that increases vaccines to the maximum extent possible within the context of a broader health and safety protocol that includes masking and testing and and distancing and and careful operations, uh, contact tracing for positive tests, et cetera. And that recognizes if you don't have the workforce, you can't do the work and then the government can't operate.
0: I don't know what is in the mind of the federal government or the people who set the timetables that you described as tight a few moments ago. I do imagine part of the consideration for applying it to contractors was, this is what we're applying to our workforce, and it's going to be hard to go to that workforce and say, you have to comply with this timeline, but we're going to give the people who you work with, who have a different badge, different deadlines. Is that kind of the crux of the problem? And do you think that's why the tight timeline situation exists? And if so, how do you fix that without turning around and saying, we're going to make the timeline for federal employees completely different, too?
2: So two different questions. Let me answer the first one. I do think they're related. In fact, PSC has urged from the beginning, you know, this really didn't start September 9th with the executive orders. It started back in July when the president made an announcement that we were going to increase this. And PSC from the beginning has said, we want to have an implementation that recognizes the blended workforce of federal civilians and contractors. You don't want to separate and segregate that workforce. You want some commonality. And so I think that's been in their intent. It's certainly been our, one of our principles. At the same time, the federal workforce has a number of additional options. Failure to comply in a Title V federal civilian workforce sets in motion a whole host of actions that take 30 days or 60 days at a minimum to go forward before you can take an action. Contractors have a much different standard in that regard, so it begins to deviate when it comes to, to the question of how do you deal with those who don't get the vaccine and what are your options there? Now let's go to the solution question. That we've got. There's two elements that come into play. One is we know that uh, individuals are eligible under the Americans with Disabilities Act for a medical uh, exemption, they can apply for that, or under the Civil Rights Act Title VII for a religious Mm -hmm. exemption. You know, how the government deals with those and how industry deals with those will be separate because companies have to make their own decisions about accommodation, but there's a lot of history of that. The second is when the OSHA standard comes out for the rest of the business world in America, it will include an option of testing regular testing with negative results for participation for those. The question is, if you're going to accommodate some percentage of your workforce, we estimate somewhere between 5 and 10 percent will successfully apply for those waivers. Those accommodations will probably include some form of a testing regime. Why not use that for the rest of the workforce where it makes sense so that you can continue to get the work done? That's the best solution.
0: The third item that you mentioned a moment ago is questions about to whom the mandate applies. And you addressed that uh, there uh, for a moment, uh, Dave, but expand on what you said there and how contractors can be comfortable that the exemptions and so on that they allow will still comply with the terms of the contract or the guidance that the government has put out about what their expectations are.
2: So again, two questions. And the, the first one is sort of how it's evolved, right? And so, the executive order set aside a number of areas where it would not automatically apply. The implementation through the task force guidance and then the FAR clause changes and the, and the class deviation memos that flowed from that have narrowed those exceptions and exemptions. And in some cases, agencies, GSA, for instance, in its guidance tightens them more than DOD does in its guidance. And for companies obviously that, that do business with all agencies, this creates separate sets of standards internally. Our view is you wanna minimize the number of exceptions because you wanna minimize the escape hatches that an individual employee would say, well, if you're gonna make me get vaccinated, I'll go to work for this federal contractor who's exempt from the mandate and therefore I won't have to do it. You wanna minimize that to the maximum extent you can.
0: All right. Um- the good news that I hear in just about everything that you've said is there are models, there are examples of other ways that we've done similar things before, and all of this sounds eminently doable. There doesn't sound like there's anything that here that requires some huge heavy lift, Dave. Is that is that fair?
2: I think, I think at its core, that's probably right. You look at the success stories that the administration have touted, you know. Uh, United Airlines, for example, right, where Scott Kirby as the CEO started this process. But if you look at the, and he's had great success, he's got 99% compliance, although 3% of those have accommodations under either religious or medical reasons, right? But it took him nine months. He started in January, and he's implementing in October. So you need to have enough time to have this work and particularly work through your unions and that sort of thing. There's another twist here, though, Francis, and and that's the states come into play here. You have the example, for instance, of the Texas governor issuing an executive order that says... I'm going to fine you if you issue a mandate or comply with a mandate. And in the end, we know how that's going to work out. We've run into this sort of thing before. The federal government will ultimately take precedence in the courts over a state rule. But in the meantime, companies are caught. And pretty much if the state's going to fine you, you're going to have to pay the fine. And eventually you'll get it back when the courts rule in your favor. A company has a lot of money. This is okay For many small and mid-sized companies, this is a really dangerous place to be.
0: David Berto, the Professional Services Council. Great to talk to you again. Thanks for your time today.
2: Thank you, and we'll be back when this is all fixed.
0: You can read more about the vaccine mandate in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast on Friday's show, The Future of Artificial Intelligence in the Defense Department. Bob Work, the former vice chair of the National Security Commission on AI and former deputy secretary of defense is here. That Daily Scoop podcast debuts Friday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The Navy and Air Force are moving forward with their Cybersecurity Reciprocity Agreement. The services will share software testing data and other information. Tony Plater is the Chief Information Security Officer of the Navy. He joined Rear Admiral Bob Day, U.S. Coast Guard retired, the former CIO of the Coast Guard, now with BlackBerry Government Solutions, at a Cyber Week event this week. Tony Plater described to my colleague Billy Mitchell the scope of the Navy's Cyber Challenge.
3: The Department of Navy's IT portfolio includes approximately 800,000 desktops and laptops. We have 200 disparate networks, about 200 data centers, 75 cloud vehicles that we use to service about 750,000 Navy personnel and about another approximately 140 Marine Corps personnel. And we have to account for our shore side and our afloat requirements. So now I have to emphasize. Uh, our float requirements require, you know, our limited bandwidth requirements. We have to deal with which are basically denied, disconnected, intermittent, and low bandwidth requirements. That combined with our float and some of our older ships uh, comes to be in weapon systems comes to be quite a challenge. So. It put, and we've also accrued a lot of technical debt, which we believe puts us 15 to 20 years behind our industry technical, uh, technology equivalents. So that's where you know we look to companies in the industry such as uh, Blackberry. So when I think about how we're doing, um, we had a, a report that came out in March 2019, the Cybersecurity Readiness Review, which told us we had to do better in this area. Um, so we've been following, we developed the information superiority vision, which serves as a blueprint that helps us go forward. We're looking heavily at modernization of our infrastructure to address this. We're looking at innovations, innovation to, efforts to, to bring in 5G AI to support us. And we look at when I look at it from a cybersecurity perspective, I look a lot at DevSec. Uh, doing what industry is doing, making sure we bake cybersecurity in from the upfront and using uh, uh, the newer methodologies to make sure we can get be- delivered quickly and efficiently. And all of this is in working closely with the acquisition community and working with our defense inter- industry partners. Thanks for that, Tony. Bob,
5: I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. As I mentioned, you spent uh, a lot of your career in the Coast Guard, so I'm sure you're familiar with this. Um, and then I'd also like to get your your thoughts on, you know, um, when it's not legacy hardware or software, how how do you, when, when you're introducing new modernized software, how are you building it in so that securities from the front, sort of like Tony uh, just alluded to at the end of his comments?
6: Yeah, I certainly understand the challenge that Tony faces, particularly with those disconnected units and uh, legacy stuff. And, and you know, it's very difficult to change those technologies, but what you can do is you add them into the network, which you know, um, in many times is being required, is leverage other tools that can kind of determine what's a normal state for that system and can determine particularly when it's abnormal. So you're using additional tools, including now people starting to leverage AI and those capabilities to determine what's normal state even for a legacy system such that you do get alerting that you know something may be up in that system even though the security is not baked in and then as you move forward you know and modernize you know there are new all sorts of standards that continue to evolve that says this is the right way to bake security in using devsecops as you're working to develop those systems and you know so you're putting security up front not bolting it on at the end, which is you know been sort of our you know past that has led us to the trouble that we're in today. Um, so it's really making that emphasis up front, and you're seeing it in DoD, DoN, you know, essentially across the government. You're starting to see that requirement in specifications, including those NIST standards that everybody's expecting everybody to meet. So it's uh, a challenge to do the legacy. There are tools out there that allow you to do some things with it, but you still have to live with those inherent risks. and the only other way is is don't put them anywhere near the internet and live with them as an isolated system. So it's quite a challenge. I understand what Tony's dealing with. I
5: want to move next to the uh, security of the technology supply chain. I know it's a big topic that the government is trying to tackle, a uh, very robust challenge. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, Bob, I'll go back to you, um, what your thoughts are on how the government can best tackle this challenge and, and how the relationship between industry and government plays a strong role in making sure that, uh, you know, the, the, the sharing of technology and information is, is appropriate and that everything is secure in that supply chain.
6: Well, you're starting to see it, and it's evolving in very uh, many, many different fronts. You know, other, th- you know, we're going to talk a little bit probably about the executive order, um, but there's all sorts of other standards that are out there that industry is meeting and you know is being required to meet as a result of specifications and contracts that are being released. Software bill of materials is going to continue to become more and more prevalent. That that's a requirement that you as a company. Are going to have to disclose all of those elements that are inside of the software that you're delivering to any company. And at BlackBerry, we're starting to see those questions being asked day in and day out. You know, are you meeting federal standards, FIPS 140-2, just for encryption? You know, are you meeting those requirements? Um, and now you're seeing evolving um, capabilities, specifically, um, you know, pointed at supply chain with CMMMC. And again, as a company, we're moving rapidly to prepare for that. There's still a lot of unknowns. There's still a lot of implementation challenges, but we know it's coming. And if we're going to continue to do business um, with the federal government and the governments of the world, which BlackBerry does on you know G20 country as we're there, um, we know we're going to have to meet those requirements. So we watch the standards. And again, we're starting to apply those standards to our products. Tony, anything to add to that?
3: I So Bob, Bob brought up all the, the great points, because um, we really do, uh, I, I referred earlier to our industry partners, and I do that and I emphasize that all the time, because we do def- depend on the defense and industry base, you know, a strong bond, so Supply chain third party, as the Bob said, are big topics these days. And we we have numerous companies who are connected into the Don, sometimes directly. Other times our weapons are, you know, they're building our weapons, building our technologies. So and we so we depend on the processes that make sure, you know, that the parts that we need are where we need them, when we need them, and in a secure manner. But the threats continue to grow, and that's why it remains a challenge. So that the did the Defense industry base prevents a key source of exploitation, you know, of our, our naval advantage. So we know that our dip companies, primes and suppliers, some have been breached, their IP stolen, uh, and we still have things that need to be addressed. So solar winds is still fresh on our minds. So it's still highly probable that we, you know, we still have those challenges. So what we're doing is working closely with the department, uh, with DOD CIO and the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment. And we're working, as I mentioned earlier, trying to modernize that infrastructure within close coordination and looking at where our parts are coming from and what our tier one, tier three, tier two and tier three providers are doing. And uh, Bob mentioned CMMC. As you said, we, you know, we support that. We're working closely with DOD uh, in, a bef- in an effort to better understand our cybersecurity posture of our partners. But equally, we don't want to be too overly burdensome on uh, industry, especially small businesses. So more work to be done in that area.
0: Tony Plater, the CISO of the Navy, along with Bob Day of BlackBerry, the former CIO of the Coast Guard, and my colleague Billy Mitchell of FedScoop. You can find a link to the entire Cyber Week event in today's show notes at TheDailyScoopPodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show, thanks for doing that high ratings, and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together every day. The entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Bob Work, the former Deputy Secretary of Defense, is here tomorrow on AI in the Defense Department. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.